Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. In this episode of Talking Humanitarianism, you will hear Michael Barnett deliver the keynote address at the NCHS annual conference held in Bergen, Norway on 4 November 2022. Michael Barnett is a University Professor of International Affairs and Political Science at the George Washington University, and his lecture is titled Humanitarianism in a Post-Liberal Age. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Antonio De Lauri, and I am the director of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies, the NCHS. And on behalf of the center, I would like to welcome you all to our annual conference. So I'm now pleased to introduce our first speaker, Michael Barnett. Michael is a university professor of international affairs and political science at George Washington University. His research interests span the Middle East, humanitarianism, global governance, global ethics, and the United Nations. Michael has published many renowned books, including Empire of Humanity, A History of Humanitarianism, and more recently, the edited collection, Humanitarianism and Human Rights. Michael's current research projects include an edited volume on the changing forms of global governance and hierarchies in humanitarian governance. So welcome, Michael. The floor is yours. It's a pleasure to be here. This is actually my second time in Bergen uh, in the last few months. And I'm not sure I want to keep up this pace. This is a kind of a hellish commute. Uh, But um, I I look forward to my next return visit. The um, what I'm going to do today is going to be too much. And I knew that as I was preparing, but that's always the consequence whenever you invite someone to talk about their ideas in progress. So uh, I hope there's coherence. Uh, I'm looking forward to the exchange of ideas, and I really hope it's an exchange. What I'd like to do, though, is um, tell you a little bit about uh, what the project's about and give you a sense of the origins. And in many ways, the origins begin with a book I wrote that Antonio uh, referenced, I, I guess, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago? I can't remember anymore. Uh, that was called Empire of Humanity, A History of Humanitarianism, which was, I guess, my attempt to be an historian. And if I had known the term at the time, I probably would have called it a global history of some sort, because that was the term that historians uh, were using. But it was an attempt to think about global history, mainly from, though, I'm an international relations scholar, from an international relations theory perspective. And the presumption was that humanitarianism was not something that was outside the world. 
Humanitarianism is very much part of the world, and that as humanitarianism tries to intervene and make the world a slightly more civilized place, in fact, humanitarianism is a creature of that world itself. And so it finds itself constantly pushed and pulled in different directions, never quite escaping the times in which it's living, but always trying to find a little bit of agency and autonomy to do so. A very difficult you know, and, and very familiar narrative when it comes to ethics in world affairs. And um, about, I guess it's about three years ago now, I get a call out of the blue, email out of the blue, from Uni Karakura, uh, who's had been the former president of MSF International. And he said he was passing through town, D.C., would like to meet. He said he had read my book, had used it in various courses, and he thought that, well, I was kind of right, uh, but he thought I was out of date, that what I had to say about humanitarianism made sense up until the turn of the century, 2000, but that we were now beginning to move into a new age, because what I had done was I had as historians will do, and I'm not an historian, I'm a political scientist, but I periodized humanitarianism into three different chunks. And I call them the ages of humanitarianism, beginning with the imperial age, then neo-humanitarian, and then the last was liberal humanitarian. And he said, we're no longer in a liberal humanitarian age. We're now in a different age. And he suggested that maybe we should get together and think about what this age is. And, you know, I think in academics there are book people and then there are article people. And we said first we would maybe do an article, but the more I dug into what this would mean, I realized that almost, I'm always kind of a book person, like I think in bigger terms. And if I wanted to do an article, it would, it would not require, I didn't think it would really do justice to the topic. So I convinced him that it would not be a bad idea for us to think about a short book. And I actually don't know what a short book means. Like, I don't know what business casual means, apparently. Um, and so I, we began to have a conversation about what this would be and, and what we would call this age we're in. And we finally settled on the idea that we're in an age of post-liberal humanitarianism. Now, why post-liberal? Post is always a great prefix to use when you have no idea where you are. Uh, it's a placeholder, right? We say it's post something when you really are sort of just in a, in a holding pattern from where you were to where you might be, but you don't know where you're going to be. And so we said we're in post-liberal because at some point the new will be born. And, and the quote from Gramsci, I think, says it all, which is the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great many morbid signs appear. And that seemed to actually capture a lot of what we were thinking about, that we had left the age of liberal humanitarianism. No one would say that the current age resembles at all those haughty, optimistic 1990s. But nor could we say where exactly we were. There were too many counter-swirling currents that were taking place. And so, you know, post-liberal sounded great as a placeholder. And then the question became, so 
as I had done with the other ages of liberal humanitarianism, where I talked about the forces of destruction, the forces of production, and the forces of compassion, and identified you know, what those were in terms of content, the question became for the ages of for the age of post-liberal humanitarianism, what would be the content of these ages and these forces? And so what we began in our conversations to talk about is what were what were the defined capturing concepts of each of these areas that we call the forces of destruction and production and compassion. What's been going on? What marks it different from the previous age we were in, from, from, the, from the previous century? And what we decided, and I should say, this is very much a work in progress. And so uh, we're arguing between each, uh, amongst ourselves all the time. And this is actually one of the first you know, coming out moments for us. So if you have comments, suggestions, criticisms, we need to hear them. Uh, and so if you have, so please share them with us. Uh, the first would be securitization, which is, you know, it's, I, mean, I don't have to inform you because everybody in Scandinavia knows securitization, right? I should be in Copenhagen. Uh, areas once defined outside security, now defined as security. Marketization, and here we began actually with neoliberalism, which is a term I don't like. It's too clunky and has too much baggage. And so marketization actually does a much better job of capturing what we saw, which is the growing role of markets in public life, but in humanitarianism. And then finally, and here we are debating, um, we can't settle on a concept. I'm, I'm just simply by fiat gonna say, we're calling this rooted cosmopolitanism, which is that, well, rather than universalism, what we're seeing is a decline of a kind of universal ethic in favor of a compassion grounded in community. And in each of these forces, we see different elements of it. And what I'd like to do is just sort of run you through what these trends are in each one to give you a flavor of what we're doing. I'm not going to comment in detail on each one. That would be too much. Uh, I'll pick and choose my favorite and, uh, and leave, uh, leave it to you to decide which ones you'd like to pursue in the Q&A. So the first is securitization, which is, again, areas of life that were once seen as outside security, now within security. And here we've seen a tremendous amount of change. And much has been commented on this, particularly after 9-11. But I want to emphasize that a lot of these changes were already in place prior to 9-11. That the first was... There was this, you know, sort of grand, I guess, utopic hope of liberal peace building, which always sounded greater on paper than it did when it came to actually operations. And very quickly, by the end of the 1990s, there was, I'd say, a growing ennui around liberal peace building. And then, uh, and you could see the dissent growing at the UN and in, uh, and in 
Washington and in the ground on the in the field. And then of course 9-11 knocks it off the block. And then you have US invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And although this is also supposed to be about democratization, we know what it's really about. And pretty soon it's about stabilization. And stabilization actually becomes one of the more important terms to emerge at the UN at this period. Many of the UN Security Council operations actually have stabilization in, in the actual um, uh, title. And stabilization now gets mixed a little bit with peace building, but it becomes clear that in this competition between the idea of progressive change and order before change, order goes first. Stability goes first. State building goes first. And the consequence is that it does have consequences for humanitarianism. It does crowd the space. It does represent a constraint. It probably, you know, according to some, it creates more confusion and fear among the humanitarians than it really did in reality. But the point remains that humanitarianism increasingly saw itself and began to write about that shrinking space. This became a common concern across the humanitarian sector. So that's one thing that we'll be writing about, and because that's clearly a major shift that distinguishes liberal humanitarianism from the post-liberal. The second is one that I've been very fascinated by, um, which is the criminalization of humanitarianism. And much of it is associated, of course, with refugees and migrants. And if you want, if you decide you don't like refugees, which most countries have decided, and they always, they never liked them, so it's not really a major shift from liberal to post-liberal. What is a shift, though, is that not only are the borders tightening, but you begin to go after those who are seen as facilitating border crossing. And you begin to see, then, the actual criminalization of humanitarianism. And as you probably know very well, that in Europe and in individual European countries, there began to develop very harsh criminal measures against those everyday citizens, NGOs, and other civil society organizations who went out of their way for essentially random acts of kindness. Bottle, you know, jugs of water on the, on the side of the road, picking people up and taking them to their destination. But also much more public spectacles as in uh, various kinds of sea rescues in the Mediterranean. And it wasn't only in Europe, it was also obviously in Australia, it was in the United States with the southern border. Uh, but this is something that, we, that I've tried to find previous episodes of this kind of criminalization, and it's hard to find. But if you can't stop those that you see as threats, then you need to stop their accomplices. And those are the humanitarians. So now what you've done is you've turned those that you used to think of as angels, you've turned them into devils. I got to catch up with my PowerPoint. Okay, um, 
the one on the right is clearly from the Mediterranean. The one on the left is on the Arizona-Mexico border, uh, where several um, Americans have been uh, arrested for providing shelter, clothes, and jugs of water so people can survive. And then attacks on aid workers. You know, the data's in. Attacks have gone up. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's some debate about why they've gone up. Uh, but, you know, whether it has to do with the lack of legitimacy, with opportunity, um, with the failure of aid workers to maintain neutrality and impartiality, and, you know, no doubt there'll be, whether they just happen to be now working in more dangerous areas, clearly that's part of the explanation as well. Uh, one, of the, one of the effects of this, of course, is, you know, the bunkerization of humanitarianism. So rather than having once practiced security through assurance, where you walk through the town, when you have time, because of the loads of paperwork that just simply... You know, ch you know, chain you to your desk. But instead of walking through the town, talking to people, getting to know people, hearing what the local gossip is, making yourself known and developing social capital and trust, now you are behind barbed wire, secluded, and no longer able to have those same kinds of connections. In addition... This also means the development within humanitarian agencies of a new sector of the professionalization of security professionals. Uh, they are a huge, as you know, a huge element now of humanitarian organizations, something you never saw before during uh, much of liberal peace building. They are now here to stay. So it's the securitization of humanitarianism itself where they themselves are wary of new security threats. Marketization, again, this is a term that we went to after we decided we were really tired of neoliberalism. And there are three big areas that we want to talk about. And with Antonio's thanks, I, uh, there's a piece that just got published in Public Anthropology uh, that sort of spins the early version of, of these sets of arguments. But we see three big changes going on in terms of how markets are working their way into humanitarianism. And one is humanitarian financing. And, you know, we can go into more detail, but the fact of the matter is that Corporations and, and philanthropies are finding their way to humanitarian organizations for a lot of reasons. Humanitarian organizations, which once used to treat corporations as something like the devil, uh, there was a huge, you know, if you will, uh, an not animosity, but fearfulness, suspicion on the part of aid agencies of the corporate sector. Uh, they've had to actually have a bit of a detente. And now they're becoming chummy. Uh, part of it has to do with the money. And there's no question. You know, it's just simply follow the money. Uh, one of the other interesting developments that's going on, and it's hard to sort of keep track or to really, I can't get my head around how significant it is, but there are new kinds of financial instruments that are being offered. 
uh, in a range of ways, from bonds to insurance schemes, and in new kinds of financing mechanisms that guarantee the investor a profit. So the idea then is that those who are investing aren't providing charitable contributions. These are investments with the expectation that, you know, the rate of return will not be high, although now compared to what the market's doing, it might not be bad. But the expectation is that you will make money at the end of it, which is, you know, get yourself, get your head around this. This is not charity anymore. This is a for-profit venture. And in fact, this is how Peter Maurer, formerly of the ICRC, would sell it at Davos. Then there are corporations and markets as solutions to problems. Again, this is part of the broader move in philanthropic capitalism where it used to be the public sector that would solve big problems. Now, increasingly, we look to corporations to solve problems, and if you're a critic of philanthropic capitalism, then it's you're turning to the people who caused the problems now to solve them. You find lots of corporations deeply involved in a lot of these areas, some, making very, some doing very good work like IKEA in areas that were, not, were largely ignored by the public sector. But, you know, everything now from cash transfers to the role of investment in refugee entrepreneurs uh, to a variety of other kinds of programs that are designed to essentially get refugees back into the marketplace or to show how markets themselves can solve some of these enduring and prolonged problems that seem to essentially capture displaced peoples and others who have suffered because of humanitarian emergencies. And you can see, you know, and the extreme of this, of course, um, is in disasters when you get to welcome in disaster capitalism, a la Naomi Klein. And then finally, part of the change is supposed to be not just in terms of you know, how you spend your money or how you organize your interventions, but also the corporate culture within the agencies themselves. The, the, there is a major change. Um, these are now heads of major, you know, multi-million, billion-dollar agencies in some cases. Peter Miliband commands a million-dollar-plus salary. This is Peter Maurer, who now, well, until recently, I don't know if he still does sit at Davos. I don't know if he has to resign that position now that he's no longer head of ICRC. But, corp but the humanitarian agencies are supposed to mimic and reflect, look a lot like big corporations. They're supposed to be run like big corporations. They're supposed to have a corporate mentality. And partly what you also see, and this has been verified by lots of studies, is that increasingly the staff, the executive staff of most of the largest INGOs are now recruited from the business world. They're not coming up the ranks. So this represents a fundamental change in the corporate culture. And the last one, which is actually the chapter I'm currently working on, and so it's 
sort of the, it's the one I'm struggling with, it's the one I'm most intimate with right now, is this question of the forces of compassion. What, and it's difficult to say that something's not changing. Uh, at least I want to, it has to change. We have a new world, so there has to be a change. But I'm not really sure what it is on both, on, and I'll explain why. When we talk about compassion, and I'll say this conceptually, when we talk about compassion, we forget the fact that compassion is a relational concept, that it's about a giver and a receiver. At least, usually it is because it's a completion of an act. Most of our energy is focused on the giver, on the compassionate. And in much of the world that we study in humanitarianism, the problem is there's not enough compassion. We need more. Find me more compassion. There's compassion fatigue. But what I think is happening, though, in the world is a form of rooted cosmopolitanism. We've sometimes called it bounded. That, in fact, it may become more like those concentric circles of affinity that we're all used to in our models of global ethics, where it begins with an intense feeling of solidarity or compassion with our family and friends and then works its way outward so that it becomes weakest or thinnest as it becomes the world. So humanity in this version is always a stick figure. You know, it's, it has the least amount of meaning or resonance uh, it doesn't really mobilize us very much. What really mobilizes us is in terms of compassion are those that we see and interact with and can really understand and, and see as human in their fullest capacity. That's what elicits our compassion. Well, there's a sense, and it's not just over the last five years, but it was beginning before that, that we were... We, I should say, who's the we? We in the West. We're experiencing compassion, some form of compassion fatigue. It, and the terms that were used to, that may be the root of this were things like xenophobia, chauvinism, nationalism, populism, end of hospitality, what all of them were trying to do was demonstrate that, in fact, borders were coming up again. That we might have wanted to aspire to a borderless world, but that became less of an aspiration. That populists didn't gravitate towards that. That was never their dream. It wasn't the dream of a lot of people, a borderless world. Who's Dream was that. And so part of what you've seen, maybe it's a backlash against cosmopolitanism or backlash against globalization, but instead what you saw was a turn inward towards territorialism, towards those that are familiar to you. And so you began to feel a form of compassion fatigue, but I would say with the caveat that it wasn't that you were necessarily tired of everybody on the outside, but rather you were tired of everybody that didn't look like you. 
so that you began to have Fortress Europe or Fortress America, America of a particular pigmentation. And so you began to have a form of, if you will, rooted cosmopolitanism that was also rooted in racism, classism, forms of religion, ethnicity. Uh, and so it just wasn't about spatial ties. The problem I'm having, though, and this is where I could use help, is what are the indicators of this? Well, one of the obvious indicators has to do with the treatment of refugees. I mean, it's, I mean we all know that refugees have been, let's say, um, resisted, contained for decades. But now, the cruelty and violence that's being leveled against refugees is really, and this is state-based cruelty, is really astounding. And without much objection from, from societies. Is that an indicator? In terms of financial giving, that actually hasn't changed much. Up until COVID, public giving was still on the rise. Wasn't keeping up with demands, but it wasn't bad. And then COVID, understandably, you know, saw a bit of a downturn. Maybe it'll go up, maybe it won't. But I'm not sure that if we were to try to find, use dollars as a measure of compassion, that that would necessarily tap into what at least I'm, I think is going on. So, you know, if you can think of, if, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're not seeing a change in compassion coming from the traditional givers of humanitarianism. Maybe this is just our fear factor growing. But if you can think of others, I'd be grateful. Um, but, as I, but as I said at the beginning, compassion has two parts. There's the giver and there's the recipient. And the question's usually on the giver, why don't you give more? And the recipient's always supposed to be grateful. The recipient's always supposed to say, you know, be grateful, be obsequious, don't complain, don't whine, everything's fine, thank you very much. But in fact, I would argue that in this world of either rooted or bounded cosmopolitanism. In fact, the recipients are tired. They're tired of compassion. They're tired of cosmopolitanism as practiced by the West. Because this has always been, and this is what I've written about for a while now, they're tired of what has been Various forms of paternalism that has always accompanied humanitarianism. It's always been there. It was more intense in the 19th century. It was always there in liberal humanitarianism. And it continues to today, as we know, because guess what? We've had a series of movements over the last several years that I would just, you know, simply call 
the protest movements against paternalism. Because if you look at what their fundamental critiques are and what they want to see, it's their fundamental critiques are they're tired of the paternalism, not just the haughtiness. They're tired of the control and the power that's being waged in a variety of ways and increasingly now in terms of forms of expertise. And they want control over their lives. They want to be able to have some say over the resources that are going to influence their fates. That's the anti-paternalist claim. Should be familiar to those who know their liberal political theory, beginning with John Stuart Mill. And so we've seen waves of this in a shortened space over the last six years, beginning with the localization movement, which, as you know, we know now, chapter and verse, which is associated with the World Humanitarian Summit and all the dreary and not very uh, successful reports and um, conventions that occurred that were trying to bring progress to it. Then, for me, the big surprise was not simply Black Lives Matter in the United States, although it was one of the few wonderful things that happened uh, during Trump and COVID, but rather it went global. I never would have imagined it. Not just global, but it, but it created a reckoning within the humanitarian sector where the language of Black Lives Matter, which also was very much the language of anti-paternalism as well, including against various forms of abuse. But that also then both localization and Black Lives Matter corresponded with the kind of claims you saw and continue to hear from decolonize aid. And decolonize is not just simply a reference to colonialism in its spatial historical nexus. It's about a particular kind of power relationship in which the claim then is those who don't have power should. And what all of these movements have to say is then that power needs to be shifted from those at the top of the pyramid to the bottom, which means it's a revolution. The question then, and this is sort of one of the big ones that you know, we haven't had a chance to get to because we've been you know, spending our time going through these different areas, is what does this all mean? You know, on the one hand, and this is sort of my inclination as someone who sort of works in the area of global history, is that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, a lot of the themes that I've seen over the last 200 years in humanitarianism, you know, there's some things that are new here, but a lot of things that are quite familiar. Uh, and so um, it, it's hard for me to say, this is so completely new, I've never seen anything like this. Though so the criminalization piece is, is actually hard for me to get my head around. Um, yet there is something that seems to be distinctive about this particular combination of the various forces that suggest that there is a change. And 
Part of it has to do, and this is my portal, is that there are two concepts that did not appear until the 2000s, really, that I think give us a hint as to what's going on. One is humanitarian space, which was a 1990s Roni Brahman invention, but didn't get really picked up until the 2000s. But the sense that humanitarians don't have the same space they once did, and part of it has to do with the excesses of humanitarianism during liberal peace build, during liberal humanitarianism, but they don't have the same uh, autonomy. And the other one is humanitarian governance, a term that did not exist at all. But that's to tell you that, in fact, let's recognize that humanitarians are not involved with solidarity. They've got power over. They're in power. And they're doing more. And as they do more, they will also be more paternalistic. So there is a sense then that something about the relationship between these two things, they're more constrained, but they're more powerful, creates something I think that's quite different about this current age. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've got power privileges, and at the other hand, you have humanitarian organizations not wanting to deal with the consequences of that power. But that's not new either. Okay, so let me stop there, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you, Michael. A lot of inputs. So we can collect some questions. I work on digital connectivity in humanitarian settings and refugee governance. Um, I had a question. I love your work, Michael, and I was wondering to what extent you, like I was thinking of your piece that you wrote on international organizations, and I was wondering how the role and the position of international organizations fits into what you have just been sketching out. Hi there. Um, my name is Heath Cabot, and I'm an anthropology um, <clears throat> at University of Bergen. Um, that was really interesting, so I hope that I'm able to give my comment <laughs> in a way that makes sense. Um, I'm really compelled by thinking about this post-liberal humanitarianism, and I'm just was wondering if there were two other, or, or a couple of other pieces to the picture that I could just maybe sketch out. I've been doing research in Greece since 2004, and I've <clears throat> seen it really shift, the kinds of humanitarian actors and all sorts of things, and also been in Italy as well. And a lot of people have written the past few years about the rise of sort of, I'll just call them like deinstitutionalized or less institutionalized humanitarian actors, whether maybe there's a church behind it or maybe there's something a bit more organized. They often do act like institutions, but the claim is, you know, we're people's initiatives. We're grounded on solidarity. We're grounded on whether ideas of direct or generalized recipe. But the sort of ideas, we don't do what those, we don't do that paternalistic thing that the old humanitarian, we're not humanitarian, we're doing this other work. So along that line, I mean, I think that goes with the changing ethos of like what's acceptable in terms of humanitarian sentiment. But alongside that, I've also witnessed an emergence of new hum targets of humanitarian, of this kind of humanitarian intervention. So these networks might work 
they're not just about, quote, the other, they're also about the person down the street or the person who might have mental illness or addiction. And so, you know, oftentimes still people who are marginalized or they might just be regular people, quote, like us. So the sort of target of humanitarian sentiment becomes cl comes closer to home. So mm -hmm. I, I was wondering, in my work, I've seen this as, I mean, because I've been working in Greece and Italy and I, I've tracked this as part of it was going along with austerity and the sort of winnowing away of the welfare state. So a lot of these sort of side initiatives are like filling in for that. And so humanitarianism somehow, or if I can call it that, like, yeah, works alongside, emerges in these other kinds of spaces with new targets who maybe are less, who, who, are, who don't want paternalism. They are citizens, maybe, or claim to be citizens. They're not the other. Anyway, sorry, I'm going on and off, but I, I feel like that might also be maybe part of the picture, but then again, mm -hmm. I'm working in the global north or at the margins of the global north, so it's, it's, a, it's a different picture. Thanks a lot. Um, really uh, wonderful overview, and, um, and you're drawing to, together uh, many different threads in a really inspiring way, and you help us kind of think about the larger picture. And, but then I wonder, how, how do you think about, is it possible to tell such a sort of grand narrative about this development? Uh, and I have the sense that humanitarian action, how it's developing, seems to be more uh, a reflection on wider political developments, where humanitarians sort of try to maneuver in response to things that are outside of their control, rather than being a reflection of kind of a poly an inherent reasoning or rationale or politics of humanitarianism itself. So I wonder how you're thinking, how you're mm -hmm. thinking about that. And, and then second, uh, I, I wonder if you see kind of 2022 as another decisive shift or whether we're still in that post-liberal era uh, after Ukraine and, uh, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and thirdly, uh, there has been some, some writings on a post-liberal order. And also, uh, when it comes to peace building and the debate on liberal peace building, there was a moment where people discussed post-liberal peace building. There's an interesting exchange between David Chandra and Oliver Richmond on how to understand post-liberal peace building. And I wonder if you have kind of some literature there that you draw on. Yeah. Um appreciate all these comments, and um, I, I'm not going to be able to do justice. I, I need time to think. I don't, you know, whenever you do these kinds of, I guess, grand histories, right, you're going to, you're going to, and you're doing it at 30,000 feet, you're going to miss a lot. And there's going to be a lot that's really interesting stuff that's, you know, that you cannot pick up, and you'd like to pick up, right? Um, and it's not just simply that they're details, but they're actually, in many ways, they can be very important to the story itself. So um, that's part of the cost of actually working at that kind of macro, le macro methodological level. Um, but as, a, you know, as an IR person, I, I accept the cost, right? That's kind of what I, I do. The, um, and, but it goes to sort of, are there other things that we're missing at the global level that are happening? I mean, that, that's part of your commentary about at this moment, like Ukraine. And, you know, it's 
We'll prob- we don't talk about Ukraine yet. I mean, it started, you know, as we'd already finished some of these other chapters. And we'll have to work it in. I'm not sure how much different, I'm not sure how much of a difference Ukraine will make. It may just simply accelerate some of the things I've said about fortress Europe or a, a sense of, of um, aboundedness. It may create more fearfulness a more sense of we only have so much space, so much money for us. Uh, we all know some of the debates that have taken place about Ukraine and um, its discriminatory elements with respect to humanitarianism. The one thing I didn't mention, uh, maybe someone was going to, is China and the geopolitical shifts. And you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about that because uh, you know, while the humanitarian world hasn't really been rocked by China. You know, there's been a little bit of China within peace building and some of the developmentalism, but it hasn't really been a player in humanitarianism uh, straight up, and it hasn't wanted to participate in any of the multilaterals with humani- you know, humanitarianism. But it's an interesting question, especially when we think about Southeast Asia, about what, what the rise of China is going to be. It's very much a player in Southeast Asia on disasters, but not on conflict, which is sort of, you know, which has been part of the case. So I don't, you know, China will be, I think, an important question that, you know, for the moment we've said, unlikely to change things very much. Um, and that may be just our ignorance. I've got to get China people to, to weigh on this. And the same thing could be for, um, for the uh, Gulf Arab states as well. So... Um, I do think that one of the, you know one of the things I was attentive to when in Age of Empire was to suggest that, and I, we haven't brought that through here, and it's a good thing to remind me is that I thought that each of these ages was going to set the parameters for ethical choices, that these different forces then were in that way various kinds of ethical constraint, what, what sort of set the terms of the ethical choices you had, so that in some places you had more autonomy than in other places. And you can certainly see that over uh, the life course of humanitarianism over the centuries, but, but also as an independent factor is not just simply aid agencies responding to the external constraints, but more importantly, how are they imagining their own agency? How are they, you know, we had this conversation last night, right? What are their red lines and how have they changed? You know, that matters, right? They're, you know, I've done some thinking about when did, and I've had to rethink my original thoughts from Empire, is I think a major change, at least for American NGOs, happened uh, not in the breaks I thought, but really in the 1970s. When, with the Vietnam War, when suddenly American NGOs realized that they were accomplices. And they then had to take a step back. And you then saw the relationship between American NGOs and, and the American state completely change. And that was due to the fact that the American NGO said, you know, this is not the relationship we want. This is not what we stand for. So part of it has to do with, I think, you know, as one, even, as one head of an evangelical aid agency told me, we have to take our temperature constantly. Otherwise, we slip. 
So I think that's part of it as well. I would just simply ask, are the ethical choices different now? And, you know, one of the things I've heard from people who um, are in, from, from members who are in aid agencies that are increasingly working with corporate donors is that we don't have a choice. You know, I don't know how bad the risks will be, but we don't have a choice. That's where, you know, why does, you know, it wasn't Willie Sutton. Why does Willie Sutton rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do aid agencies go to corporate donors? Because that's where the money is. And then that, so that's a different set of calculations. That's what Peter Maurer at ICRC had to begin to work with. So I think that's, those are some of the important things. I think the deinstitutionalization of humanitarianism is interesting. I don't, um, you know, my sense, I don't have the numbers. I saw something similar going on in uh, part, just anecdotally, uh, in parts of Africa, for instance, where there were a lot of, not a lot, there were at least a lot of instances in which, let's say, African staff who had been part of large uh, uh, international non-governmental organizations broke off on their own, either because they could not crack the glass ceiling uh, because of racism. A lot of times it was because they were overly bureaucratic. And this has been a constant theme for many aid workers, which is that these agencies have become so bureaucratic, you're no longer able to do what you wanted to do, what you thought you were going to do. So you go find a different way to do it. And, and so these are kind of almost anti-bureaucratic, romantic movements of a sort. I don't know how long they can last in this, in this marketplace. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, you're talking about a few at the very top that consume most of the resources and, you know, with a, also a few donors who are going to provide. So I, you know, and if you're happy, if you think small is beautiful, then you're fine. But if you think that, you know, you want something bigger and you want to be able to provide over the year for your staff and keep good staff and things like that, it's, it's, it's a problem. So, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that sense of humanitarianism in its purest form of volunteerism, of a, of a humanitarian spirit, you know, that can maybe can only be found in these small packages. But I think it's something that all of them struggle with uh, at, the, at the largest level. I think it's very hard. Um, but I do think that that question, the other question you raise is one, I guess I want to read your work, uh, because that fluidity between the international and the local Right and how it is that your sense of the international, deserving and undeserving, how that translates into the local, and then how the local translates into the international, I think is really interesting. And um, you know, I've I've seen some some people within, uh, again, I don't follow this literature, but some people within um, in anthropology who follow issues of medical care have done it. But I think it's, it's hard to do, but it gets into, you know, all that great Foucauldian work on what's normal and how one controls it and things like that. So, um, but I would, I would love to, you know, talk more and, and read your stuff. On the, uh, uh, Miriam, on the, um, 
IOs. I'll give you an example from my courses on global governance, which is that when I first started teaching global governance, uh, it was all about IOs. That's what they were about. Okay, that's what the course on global governance was. And then I put it aside, didn't teach it for like 15 years. I know I'm old. And then I picked it up and I realized that global governance was no longer about IOs. And I found increasingly as I've teached that course, the amount of time I spend on IOs shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And what expands? All these other experiments, public-private partnerships, private authorities, benchmarking, standardization. Um, you know, where are the rules coming from? They're not coming from IOs really anymore. I mean, IOs do some important things, and, they do, and, they, and they, sometimes they do them well. But in terms of how global governance works, um, it's much more layered. And, uh, you know, you've got now expert communities that are much more prominent. And so I, IOs are still important. And um, I don't want to, you know, dismiss that. But I think what's interesting is the radical shift that's taken place. And you can see it not, you know, if you look at climate change, where are all the interesting experiments coming from? There, nothing's going to happen at COP. Where are the interesting experiments coming from? Other places, from expert communities, from municipalities. I mean, this is where the hope resides. Okay. Does yeah. that mean I'm done? <laughs> yeah, almost. Uh, I just wanted to yeah, to follow up a little bit on what Ith uh, mentioned about this, uh, you know, what normally are described as alternatives to the big organizations mm. in terms of, you know, forms of humanitarianism. Um, in, in a way, it's, uh, they can be, be themselves seen as an effect of the marketization. Yeah. So this, uh, this explosion of the, you know, of the, of different actors, uh, rather than alternatives, they are an mm -hmm. effect probably yeah. of those. And I remember Heidi is here. We, when we were on on the border between Ukraine and Poland, uh, actually I, there, were, there was not a single NGO I knew, <laughs> uh, you know, helping refugees. And and there were some that were very strange. I don't remember the title. The biggest one was a Chinese one, and the name was like against the Communist Party in China. That was the name of <laughs> some, something like that. That was the name of the NGO. Uh, and and they had they had the biggest stand. Everybody was there because they had the, the good coffee. So you know, uh, so this is this is what happens in this kind of contest. And uh, so there is this uh, you know fragmentation, right? Yeah. I guess the one caveat I would have is that we have to be careful of when we're taking that picture, because I think what we see in a lot of times is that at the very onset of these disasters you see a lot of Ma and Pa work. You know, you saw that right in Greece with Lesbos, where yeah. everybody wants to be there. And then, and then, yeah, spring breaks over. You know, um, got to go home. And, and so, and then, you know, which is understandable, right? There's only, it's not compassion fatigue. It's just that there's a limit to what you can do. And then, eventually, it's the, you know, the legacy institutions that stay, and, and, and it's not to say that all of them leave, some stay, but some of the new ones stay, but 
you know, it, we, there, it, the number that, from what we can see from the number of new creations, at least in terms of how we count these things, they're, they're, not, they're not a lot. Now, many of them may go, and this, this would be an interesting question, many of them may go home and stay, many of, you know, who've been on Lesbos go home and continue to do work of a different kind. Two final questions, Heidi and Stain, and then we close the... Thank you so much for the talk. It was really interesting. Uh, I'm Heidi Moxta. I'm a postdoc at CMI. I just have two uh, questions about terminology. Um, first, I kind of want to challenge you a little bit about your use of liberalization or liberalism, and maybe especially this idea that these trends and securitization are signifying post-liberalism. Okay. Because at least according to thinkers like Akhil Mbembe, Hagar Kutev, and so on, then... Liberalism, at least how it's been practiced and institutionalized in Europe, has always been about kind of excluding certain people outside the West and outside Europe and, and promoting the freedom of some and constraining the freedom of others. So that's my first thought. And then the second question is about rooted cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism. So why cosmopolitan? Where is cosmopolitanism? Because at least in the, in the literature I read about rooted cosmopolitanism, it's still this like global sensibility but it's kind of it starts from home, or it doesn't contradict with domestic attachment and so on. So why rooted cosmopolitanism and not, let's say, nativism or ration, uh, rationalized nationalism? Thanks a lot. Uh, what I wanted to say was fairly similar to what uh, Heidi just said, actually, because I wanted to question the whole <clears throat> idea of a post-liberal era, because the the three trends you described seemed to me all of them actually as uh, not just compatible with liberalism, but mm. actually represent a reinforcement of liberalism. Uh, now, in the security area, there's always, liberalism has always had this, what they say, um, iron fist and a velvet glove. And the iron fist has perhaps become more visible, but that is not something that is alien or uh, incompatible with liberalism as such. And the second point, uh, marketization, of course, represents a doubling down and, re and strengthening of liberalism uh, in a stronger form than ever. And the um, perhaps most interestingly, the idea of um, the victim or the recipient rejecting paternalism is could be seen as a universalization of liberalism because liberalism is based, or a basic element of liberalism is exactly the rejection of paternalism. So instead of having a post-liberal age, we're having a ultra-liberal age. Or a <laughs> Yeah, I can't do that. Because <laughs> that, that would... You know, because if I was, I mean, maybe it depends on where you write it from, but if I was to write that from Washington, D.C., I'd be seen as a hero of the right. Um, hmm. uh, so, no, but seriously, the, um, the, the point stands. I, th I think the broader point stands, which is that liberalism has never been a thing, right? It's not something that has ever had a formal essence to it. It's something that has evolved over time. It's had different elements attached to it that have different practices at different historical moments. 
right? And including it's never had the um, full equality, full non-discrimination. It's, you know, in the United States, you know, this was a Jim Crow country up until at least 1965, some would say to today, right? So, you know, so, you know, so therefore the head of the global international order was a non-liberal state. Um, so I buy that. So, and um, I think the, yes, doubling down on the marketization is, yes, that's still part of the liberal ethos, very much so. I hadn't thought about the idea of liberalism and universalism as part of the anti-paternalism, but I think that's an interesting interpretation. I got to think about that. I think that's, that's right. Um, the securitization piece is also an interesting, it, it's also part of a piece, of course, in debates about liberalism, which is this debate about how far, you know, what's the balance between private and public security, and what's, you know, the balance between the private and the public. And so, in many ways, these are, are different trade-offs that are being made at different times. And so maybe post-liberalism, how's this for crass instrumentalism? Maybe post-liberalism is not the most accurate term. I need a term. I'm not sure doubling down on liberalism makes a great deal of marketing sense. I think, you know, if I were to introduce the age of post-liberalism, but with these kinds of caveats might actually provide better mileage because we don't want to say that liberalism is gone. We just want to say it's not like the liberalism that people knew in the late 20th century. It's fundamentally different than that form of liberalism. That, and, but I, I clearly need to think more about that. And you might have ideas about really good marketing devices. The uh, last thing I want to say is on the cosmopolitanism. Um, this, is a, this is a really, this has been a struggle for us. And I'm not completely comfortable with rooted cosmopolitanism, but not for the reasons you say. Um, because it's not, because I don't, because you're right, yes, all cosm, right, we all choose. In a world that we live, we have more suffering then we have the capacity to deal with it. We have to be selective. Our selectivity is not random. Our selectivity is often biased. We make, we prioritize, we do social triage, we decide which populations we like which, more than others. And that's not random, it's usually a constant. And so you're right to say that it's always qualified. And, you know, so we're not Peter Singers. None of us are. Okay, we have to take some really powerful ayahuasca uh, treatments to get there. The, the consequence then is that there is always going to be a bias. The reason why I hedge on rooted cosmopolitanism, it has to do with its origins, which that is origins were, it was a code word for, for Jews. It was anti-Semitic. This was, the, this was what the Russians and the Soviets used as a way of talking about the Jews because their Jews are due loyalty. They're kind of, 
you know, mobile, they're not really stuck somewhere, they're rooted, but they're cosmopolitan. And cosmopolitans were never a good term uh, as it got attached to the Jews. And so it's the, that's a code word that was always problematic. The rooted, less so. But, you know, it's what, what I'm trying to convey here is in, is in many ways a very simple thing that uh, I think liberalism and cosmopolitanism were both aspirational. They didn't exist, but they were, they were aspirations. They were myths that we told ourselves. And sometimes those myths, I think, stopped us from going into the abyss. And sometimes those myths actually helped lift us to the next level. But they were myths. And I'm not sure they're aspirations anymore. And, and part of me wants to wrestle, what is the consequence of this? If they're not aspirations, liberalism is not an aspiration I don't see for many of my fellow countrymen and women. So that's, you know, but that's part of the, you know, the texture, that cultural texture when we talk about the forces of compassion. That's what I'm trying to pick up, and, it's, and, and I'm not sure how to do it. And as a political scientist, I'm always looking for ways to measure things. Um, and that's a problem, but that's, that's where I'm left. Thank you. Those are great questions. So thanks again, Michael.